Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Dissecting Docs with producer, author Carol Dean, and actor-journalist Dr. Don Schwartz shares reviews of excellent documentaries. Dr. Schwartz's book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and his filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com. And today, five incredible documentaries are covered by Don and Carol Dean, producer of this show. Above and Beyond, Greedy Lying Bastards, Bottled Life, and The Winding Stream. And we are honored to have Beth Harrington as our special guest to give us the inside information on producing her brilliant documentary, The Winding Stream. And Don, what did you think of the international documentary, Bottled Life? Oh, I loved it. I love all the films on our show. The the film, again, is Bottled Life, and the subtitle is Nestle's Business with Water. And just hearing that evokes the current cliche that water is the new oil. And, of course, that should not be. Water should be a human right. And at this point in time, that's the struggle going on. And director Urs Schnell, this is a Swiss documentary, and I apologize to all concerned for the pronunciation, the director, Urs Schnell, in partnership with Res Grigger, again, apologies to the two guys, uh, decided to focus on the most successful bottler of water. What's going on in the world is corporations are getting groundwater or meltwater and packaging it and selling it back to us in plastic bottles and charging us for it and and ex- exploiting human beings' need for water. And Nestle is the largest. They have at least 15 brands being sold in 30 countries around the world, third world and first world and second world and who knows, fourth world. And... So it was very. It was obvious you needed to cover the largest business, and this business has a bad guy, the CEO. At the time of the production, the CEO's name is Peter Brabeck, and he uh, he is a spokesperson for Nestle's business with water, and ultimately for the entire global uh, global exploitation of water. And, and and they obviously Nestle would not let the filmmakers anywhere near them, but the filmmakers were able to get lots of public presentations by Peter Brabeck, and uh, this gentleman uh, uses extremely sculpted words to justify just the company's exploitation of our need for water, and of course that also means a massive injection of ta- toxic plastics in our environment. And and uh, there are so many environmental maladies going on, and, and this is one that we hold in the back of our mind. And this film brings this malady to the to the, to the forefront. Uh, the filmmakers go to uh, Maine in the United States, and they go to a, a section in Nigeria, and they go to Pakistan, and they cover the different ways that water is being uh, used, and and people are being exploited. 
and they they show victories and defeats in terms of the fight for this human right. Uh, this is one of those films, you watch it, it's infuriating, but guess what? We need to be infuriated about what's going on. Uh, and I want to emphasize, this film is made with top production qualities. It came out in 2012. This is 2015. This film is even more relevant now than it was when it was first released. Again, the title is Bottled Life, Nestle's Business with Water. And you can see the film by going to the website. The website is bottledlifefilm.com, and you click on See the Film at the top. And by the way, that website is in English, French, and German. And like the film itself, it's a great website. It's how you can get started with this film and beyond. Uh, so that's it. This is, uh, I, I tell you, all the, all the films we're, we're, we're recovering, covering today are must-see films, and this is one of them. Thank Carol? you so much, Don. Yeah, thanks. That's so great. I, tr- I truly agree with you. But I want us to mention the creative director, Dodo Hunzinger, because he did a fabulous job, too. And um, so, of course, the subject is the investigation uh, into Nestle's water business. But when you realize that Nestle is one of the highest profit companies in the world, well, $100 billion a year in sales, Almost $16 billion in profits. Now, in the film, the, one of my favorite characters was Maud Barlow. She is a main water advocate. And she comes across really well. Just a plain old down-home lady that tells us how it is. She says, Nestle comes in and takes the water until the spring is dry, and then they go to another clean water source, and, uh, and they do the same thing. Poland Springs, that water we all love and buy, is now dry. The water you get with that name comes from another spring nearby. That one is gone. So in the beginning of this documentary, we follow the filmmaker to Africa because he wants to verify Nestle's public relations statement that they are financing the water supply in Ethiopia to over 20,000 stranded refugees. And what he discovers is that Nestle left in 2005. The engineers of the pipeline that built, it was built by Nestle's, but they say that they're no longer helping in any way. Uh, the engineers say that Nestle's left, and it's up to them to make this thing work. But Nestle's is still using it for PR. So immediately they uncovered the first misstatement. And then... Uh, we go back to Maud Bar- Barlow, who tells us that Nestle's often sets up water resources only for PR reasons and then leaves them. She says they never stay and support the poor. That's not their mandate. And they have over 70 brands of water that they sell in the United States. And I loved it when you said that uh, Nestle's would not give any information to the filmmaker. What's so interesting there is that when they heard he was making a film, they took him to lunch and they offered him a job making another film for them of water and agriculture to move him away from this investigative film. And when he declined, they told him Nestle's would not give him any information. That's exactly what they did. They locked him out. They never answered any more calls or emails. 
And another thing I really enjoyed in this film is when they investigated one of Nestle's major water sources in America in the state of Maine. Uh, what what shocked me was that Nestle's gets water for about a cent a gallon from the natural water in Maine, and then they bottle it and sell it back to us. So that water is for the residents of Maine, and the law in Maine says as a resident you can take as much water as you want. They don't have a limit on it. Well, Nestle's is a resident because corporations are people, and their bottling plant makes them uh, makes the water available to them uh, legally. So uh, what's going to, on now is that the residents have band together to get rid of Nestle, and in fact they stopped them from building a second Poland Springs bottling manufacturing plant. And then Nestle sued the city, saying they were restricting commerce. And you know what? Nestle's could easily win. The city would be responsible for any lost income if they stopped them from building that manufacturing site. So you can see how powerful corporations are becoming in the United States. So many people uh, that were in the film felt that Nestle's is a predator, looking for water, creating testing wells, while they uh, try to pounce on that land, because um, what they buy, they can. They try to buy everything, and what they can't, they get leases for others. But anyway, I I just wanted to suggest that once you see this film, you will be upset with how our water is being depleted. So one of the things you might do is consider... Uh, that you're the consumer. It's our money that funds Nestle. So why not consider finding local water from a well in your area, purchase from them in large bottles, and then fill up your own small container? I do that. I carry my own water to my meetings and in my car, and I think it's healthier in a glass bottle. And then I know I'm not supporting any major corporation that's depleting the water supply. So I think this is a very important film as an eye-opener of how powerful we are with our dollars, what we can do to stop people like this. Okay, Don, well, tell us what you think of the great film Above and Beyond. Above and Beyond, the subtitle is The Untold True Story. And the true story is about how Israel in 1948 got an Air Force and saved itself from uh, an immediate uh, destruction. Uh, and the, the story is international. This is about uh, uh, pilots and others from around the world. In May of 1948, that's when the United Nations uh, chartered Israel and Israel created itself and said it's a, it's a nation and Israel was surrounded by five Arab nations. They were, there were multiple armies, and the moment, the moment that the, Israel became officially a nation, the, the countries were planning to attack, and they did attack. And the United Nations, although they gave Israel its charter, they, they, didn't, have any, they didn't have any substantive defenses for Israel, nor any of the member nations. So Israel was on its own, and Above and Beyond tells a story of a variety of, of characters from various places who took the law into their own hands. 
and they began the Israel Air Force with two Piper Cubs, and those are teeny tiny airplanes. I think they're they're made out of canvas or some sort of material. And the next step was Israel got Messerschmitts from Germany, and they began to to have uh, the, to defend themselves with these airplanes. Ironically, Egypt had Spitfires, which was a British airplane, so it was Israeli pilots flying German airplanes and in combat with Spitfires from Britain. And these airplanes that Israel had were, quote, junk, unquote, planes made with pieces and parts of other planes. And so they were, there were crashes and, and losses. And so every mission that the, this nascent Israel Air, Israeli Air Force went on was highly risky, and there was one mission that if they did not complete the mission, it's likely that Israel would never have uh, gone on to be a nation. And obviously that, that was successful. The film features plenty of archival material and interviews of the gentlemen who survived and participated. And these guys, these are old guys talking about their time being essentially vigilantes fighting for Israel, trying to save the nation before it even began, their their stories are they're worthy of of, of uh, there's got to be a, a, a narrative film about this. Their stories are harrowing. Their stories are entertaining. They 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 have a great sense of humor. They have a great sense of history, and it's clear that their participation in this nascent air force was utterly life changing for them. You can buy the DVD. Uh, from the film's website, and I want to give you the URL for the film's website. It's kind of a long one. It's www.playmountproductions, P-L-A-Y-M-O-U-N-T, productions, all one word, .com. That's the website for producer Nancy Spielberg, and uh, and you will find other of her work there, but you can click on uh, whatever she uses for projects or films, and you can find... Uh, you can find the DVD there. But Above and Beyond is also available on iTunes and Netflix and Amazon Prime. And the film was directed by Roberta Grossman, again produced by Nancy Spielberg. I've seen the film mm, two or three times so far. It, it, it's it's jaw-dropping, it's entertaining, and it's history. It's Carol? brilliant, isn't it? It's a brilliant film. I totally agree with you. And what's so interesting is that I didn't know that history. I didn't know that five Arab nations with tanks and airplanes were ready to pounce on Israel as soon as they became a state. And, and they had nothing, absolutely nothing. I love this story starting in 1948 where this group of World War II pilots mostly from America, volunteered to fight for Israel in this war of independence. And uh, we learned how they had to train in secret, and they were told that what they were doing had to, could not be discussed with anyone. And uh, these pilots didn't care about all the dangers that they told them about. They had to meet in various places around the city. They got them to New York, and they said, do you want to support Israel and use your skills because we have 600,000 Jews that we need to protect from 50 million Arabs. And so the aviators said, no, we're going to do this. And they went in with all heart, 
and two two of them that flew the planes in for the first time. They flew in those single-engine planes on over water for 11 hours to deliver those planes, and they had fuel tanks inside the plane that were filling up the wing tanks. And so they were just flying bombs is what they were. Only Lindbergh was the only person who ever did this before them. So this gives you an idea of how these fearless flyers uh, help to create and protect Israel. Uh, I think it's an incredible David versus Goliath story that really endears you to Israel and the people who helped create it. And, you know, you wonder... Had these men not been available or had that not volunteered, what might have happened? Um, because most of us don't know how well armed the Arabs were and how vehemently opposed they were to the new nation of Israel. And I think that Katadin uh, Productions used well-preserved archival footage. They created excellent B-rolls. And I was totally interested every minute. The film moved quickly. Uh, you really enjoyed the, the stories. And it drew me in personally. I liked the way that they told this story. And you know that it had to be an incredible amount of research to find the all, all of that archival footage and cut it in with the stories. But they did it very well, in my opinion. So, yes, Don, thank you for all the information where people can get it because I highly recommend this film. Now, yes. yeah, wasn't it good? I'm so glad you found this for us. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go to another important film now, Greedy Lying Bastards. Greedy Lying Bastards. And this is a film that I've been waiting for for a long time. It's a film about the environment. It's a, it's a film about specifically the corporate uh, money and initiatives and efforts to deny climate change, to deny global warming, and it's done very well, and this is the film I've been waiting for because I just don't see that covered anywhere in the media. That's what documentary films are about. They, they, uh, They are the red pill from the Matrix. You get to hear the reality rather than the fantasy. And the film is directed and narrated by Craig Rosebrow, and Daryl Hannah is the executive producer. And I want to give Daryl Hannah's website out right now because without her, I don't know if we would have had this film. So Daryl Hannah is dhlovelife.com, dhlovelife.com. It's a great website. Uh, And what Craig Rosebrow and the film does is it calls out the companies and the people who are Uh, who are promoting the denial of global warming and climate change. And these are oil companies, they're trade groups, they're politicians, they're Supreme Court justices. And Rosebrow traveled the world to gather information and and to get the images for this film. And I tell you something, Carol, if I was fabulously wealthy, I'd have every member of Congress, I'd have the president's cabinet and and our 50 state governors be required to see this film. And, Absolutely uh, right, Tom. Yes. And and so to find the film, it's uh, greedylyingbastards.com, one of the easier uh, website names to remember. To excuse me, to remember greedylyingbastards.com. And also, uh, while we're at it, 
uh, one of the, one of the things you learned in that website is what you can do, and what can you can do is exposethebastards.com, exposethebastards.com, and click on Take Action. Again, the film is Greedy Lying Bastards, directed and narrated by Craig Rosebrow. Great. Yeah, this is, if you're interested in the survival of us as a species, then this is a must-see film. Technically, it is a well-made film. The photography, the editing uh, makes it one of the best films I've seen that clearly proves that global warming is real. And the film shows us exactly why and how we're being lied to. Because when I saw that title, I thought, oh, my gosh, how could they make such a statement legally? How can they get away with it? Well, because the proof is in the film. Uh, the producers did a brilliant job of capturing true stories of Americans who are suffering from global warming. It's a perfect way to tell the story. Show us what's happening and let us listen to the survivors. And they did a wonderful job of getting up close and personal and sharing stories of devastating losses so that we're shocked into realizing that we are being lied to for corporate gain. Again, it's, it's, <laughs> we're on a roll today with corporate gain stuff. But the filmmakers, I think, did an excellent job of getting the best sound bites from people saying that it does not exist and then sound bites from the scientists who are showing you the proof that it does exist. And they deliver these succinct statements with compelling images. So you can make your own decision. The filmmakers were very wise just to give us the facts and let us decide, because the facts allow them to make such bold statements with the title of the film. And on the film's website, they direct you to ExposeTheBastards.com. Now, once you get on this site, there's a picture of many men, and you can see all of these guys. Some of them you'll recognize immediately, but you can put your cursor on the photos of the leading deniers of climate change, and you get their names. Uh, Example, once you put your cursor on Mr. Koch, the bubble says, who are the Koch brothers? We are the biggest deniers of climate change that you've never heard of. So it's a lot of fun. It's eye-opening, and it's a very important website. I believe that fear of your of being wrong and fear of bringing up uh, an unwanted discussion with your peers keeps people from even stepping into this issue because we have been so confused over it's true, it's not true, it's not true, it is true, that nobody wants to go there. Uh, And that's why we really need to see this film or even get on the website and look at the trailer. You'll get shocked at the trailer. But I, I really think that if you're interested in what's happening with global warming, uh, go to ExposeTheBastards.com, and you can. it tells you what to do and how to get involved. And this is an important thing. This is really saving our Earth to fight climate change. There's a whole list of things you can do that will make a difference. Now, um, uh, Don, I want you to give us your review of The Winding Stream. Well, I'm, I'm embarrassed, Carol, because... <clears throat> uh, It's not polite to gush, and I have to gush over this film. (laughs) So it is, again, again, called The Winding Stream. And the film is about 
the birth and uh, growth of country music. It's about what's called the Big Bang of country music. It's about three people, A.P., Maybell, and Sarah Carter, and they uh, they worked and played music in the early 1900s, and filmmaker Beth Harrington tells their story as individuals and as as uh, a group. And uh, what ha- what they did was uh, AP started it, and they uh, AP the the gentleman. Uh, went around the South, he found songs, and brought the songs back, and the three three of them made those songs, recorded them, and they became successful, and the film follows that story. It also follows the stories that happened after it. And one of uh, Maybell's children is June Carter, and June Carter ended up marrying Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash appears in the film and he is obviously a very strong presence. But uh, this film is so well done. I've seen it four times. The, each character has an epic story. And, and, and the quality of their lives, the events of their lives, just turns Shakespearean. And there's so much drama and so much joy in this music. This, and the film is roughly arranged in songs. And so a song assigns a section, and you get to hear uh, various, uh, various interviewees talk about the Carters, talk about the music, and, and there's a lot of special effects, which were delightful. And, uh, I wanna, and, and one of the things, one of the quotes at the very beginning of the film uh, was by Joe Eli, and uh, Beth Harrington is our guest today, and I know she's uh, listening, so I apologize. I don't know if it's Eli or Eli. So Joe Eli, he says about the Carter family, A.P., Maybell, and Sarah were known as the original Carter family. He says people should know who they are just like they should know who the first president of the United States was. <laughs> and when I first saw this movie and I put it on, I, I always wonder why am I putting this film on? It's nothing I'm interested in, and I don't have a big interest in country music. I don't have that big of an interest in history, but I was engaged immediately by this film, and uh, and every time I watch it, I see something I missed. It is so rich in images and in stories and in characters that you know there's so much more to learn about them, and this is this is. I, it's almost too small to say that this film is on my best of list. It's just, it's a masterpiece, and I want uh, everybody to see it. I want the film to get out there as much as it can. It's an experience, Don. It's an experience. I had about seven or eight people over, and after dinner, I said, listen, I want to show you a documentary. And I looked at their faces, and they were like, oh, God, please. I said, no, how's ten minutes? I'll give you, promise you me that in ten minutes I'll take it off. So I put it on. Ten minutes later, I said, okay, that's it, ten minutes. No, no, don't touch that film. <laughs> <laughs> And the in and they were laughing and hooting and saying, "Well, how does she do that? And where? Who is this woman? And this is a documentary. This is there that good? You know, they were like, I can't believe this. 
it is really a great film. So I'm so glad that we have Beth, and I want you to introduce her. And you ask, you start with your questions, and I'll come in with mine. Okay, uh, Beth. I want to just say one more thing about the film: that you do not have to know country music. You do not have to like country music. This, the subject of this film, this film transcends the subject of country music. It transcends the individuals involved. It's, it's such a well-done film, and it's, it's joyful, and it's r- rare to find a joyful documentary film. TheWindingStream.com is going to be the, the central place to go to to find the film. And I uh, know, Beth, I'd like to go ahead and introduce you, Beth. Great. Thank you. Okay. So Beth Harrington is the director of this film. Beth has been making, uh, been involved with media since 1977, and uh, she, she, two of her previous feature documentaries are The Blinking Madonna and Other Miracles, and that, that is a very sweet film to, to watch, and okay. then The Woman of Rockabilly, Welcome to the Club. And, okay. and uh, oh, Beth, did I get that wrong? Is it Welcome to the Club, The Women of Rock, Rockabilly? That's right. It's Welcome to the Club, The Women of Rockabilly. That's correct. Oh, th- uh, sorry about that. That also is a fun film. Okay. Well, first of all, I w- I'd like you to tell us about your who created your incredible animation in the film, because I think the way you had the old pictures come to life and start singing was totally engaging. Oh, thanks. Well, I I am I worked with a wonderful animator uh, here in Portland, Oregon, where we're based, and um, his name is Mike Olson. And Mike was uh, introduced to me by another film friend, and he hadn't done a lot of uh, film work. Although since he's worked on our film, he's done a lot more. But he just has this engaging um style that's kind of whimsical and i i immediately knew when i saw what he did that that was what i was going for in the film um so he was he works with old photographs and uh combines a bunch of different images in in one in one little piece of animation so he's working with historical imagery and bringing them bringing those images to life so as one example in the film we see the carter family going to bristol tennessee where they're going to be discovered um and they're in a an old uh antique car and they're trying to afford a river and and mike brings all those elements together gets the river gets the car gets the people and turns it into a brilliant piece of animation so i was really fortunate to find him he's a great guy oh yes you were it just adds so much to the film because you know the photo is real and then the animation makes you feel like you're right there and it's really happening that's good because the other issue of course with something that's dealing with subject matter this old is that there is no footage of the original Carters playing. There, there was never, they were never filmed. So, um, and there's parts of the film where we really wanted to give them more life and, uh, you know, bring, bring more vitality to the film in general. Uh, it was really important to, to try to figure out another way to do it. And we thought about recreations and we thought about, you know, just panning and scanning on photos, but at the end of the day, when we found Mike, we knew we had something cool. Yeah, you did. You really did. Well, tell me, how did you get one of the last interviews with Johnny Cash? Um, well, that came about over time. Um, it, it sort of speaks to the the uh, genesis of the whole project, which is that um, 
as Dawn mentioned, I had done another film called Welcome to the Club, The Women of Rockabilly. And when I was working on that, um, I was fortunate enough to get uh, the assistance of Roseanne Cash. And she narrated the film. Um, and in, in the course of meeting Roseanne and working with Roseanne, I started thinking about this film and how to, you know, winding stream and how to make that happen. And uh, when I finally broached the subject with her about doing this new project, The Winding Stream, she very graciously uh, agreed to do an interview. She was the first interview we did in the film. And then at the end of that interview, just as I was kind of screwing up my courage to ask her if she would introduce me to her father, she turned to me and said, you know what you should do next? You should interview my father. I'll set it up for you. <laughs> so it was um, actually one of the easier things that happened in the film um, in, a, in a weird way. And he was very gracious and uh, even though he was ill at the time and had just come back from the hospital that morning, he still agreed to do the interview. We were prepared to walk away and not do the interview because we had heard he was in the hospital when we arrived in Nashville. And he was so committed to the memory of both June and Maybell that he willingly uh, did the interview and was fantastic in it, I think, so... Oh, he was, and I and he really lauded Maybell for her talent. She was an extraordinary, talented woman, wasn't she? She was indeed. A lot of people believe that Maybell's guitar playing style revolutionized not only country music but American music in general. That she brought something to it, um, a style of playing that people hadn't been doing that at that point. That she was combining rhythm guitar and lead guitar in one instrument. And uh, nobody, when we think of guitar heroes these days, I think mostly we default to an idea of a man playing a guitar. But Maybell in 1927 was playing a style of guitar that was revolutionary. And that's informed all kinds of playing and, and country music and folk music and rock and roll. We can all look to Maybell and, and thank her for her contribution to that. Well, you know, after seeing your film, I can just imagine that uh, AC comes back from the mountains with his cohort, and AC's got little pieces of paper stuck all over his, in every pocket and every jacket, and he's pulling out these pieces of paper uh, that had the the words. And mm-hmm. his, what was his partner's name? He remembered it. His, it was. Yeah, his song-collecting partner was a man named Leslie Riddle. He was an African-American blues man from Kingsport, uh, Tennessee. And uh, Leslie and AP started a, a relationship, a friendship early on that, that uh, took them song-collecting for many, many years. And uh, I like to say, you know, we talk about George Martin, people like that being the fifth Beatle. I think uh, Leslie Riddle was the fourth Carter. Um, and so, yeah, he, they they work together, and, and and also Maybell is the first person to uh, note that besides her own what she brought to the table, Leslie taught her a lot of blues licks and a lot of music that hadn't really made its way into their community. So she learned a lot about um, a certain kind of blues playing that that uh, she you know she attributes to Leslie Riddle. Well, just imagining them all in the same house and uh, AC finding some words and uh, Leslie uh, humming the tune and mm-hmm. then, uh, Maybell get, getting the guitar and starting to play it and Leslie saying, yes, more of this, less of that, yeah, you got it. And then mm-hmm. there you had it. You had the song. That's and, right. And 
this song would never have made it out of the mountains had it not been for A.C. Carter. I think so. I think A.P. brought a lot to the table, and, and uh, you know, he they tease him because he, he wasn't uh, engaged as much as a musician per se, but historians think of him as a master arranger and a master song collector and certainly uh, knew a good hook to a song when he heard one. Um, he had great taste in, in material. And he also wrote some himself, too, so, yeah. Oh, it was great to bring all of that history to life. Uh, now, back to um, the art of film funding. <laughs> Tell us <laughs> some of the techniques that you use to raise money for your film. Yeah, well, it, it, this was um, a long haul. I, I won't pretend that it was easy. It, this took film took me um, over 12 years to make. Um, when we started off I, in, in 2003, I was thinking that I would do what I've always done, which is write grant proposals and see if I could get some grant money. And, uh, and that worked for a little while, and we got some seed money that way. But it became pretty evident pretty quickly that the game was changing right in the midst of trying to make this film. And uh, the old methods weren't going to work as well as I had as well as they had for me in the past. So we got seed money, we were able to start shooting, and then with that material I was able to start showing it to people. But um, for a bunch of reasons, uh, technological change, the funding landscape changing, um, you know, at one point we were trapped in the midst of the downturn in 2008. Um, there just wasn't money loosening up. So uh, one of the things we started doing was crowdfunding. Um we we did a small Kickstarter campaign, and w- right around the time Kickstarter started, uh, so, you know, the mid-2000s, and got a lot of traction that way, um, at least enough t- money to get us to a certain place in our um, production schedule. And then, at the same time, those crowdfunding platforms really uh, just draw attention to your film, and you, you end up collecting the names of many people who support your film and want to see it through. So um, that was so successful that we we raised $10,000, well, $13,000. Our goal was ten, and we raised 13000 Then we went back a few years later and made one big final push to finish production, and that was a campaign that we were supposed to, we were trying to raise uh Fifty thousand dollars, and we raised. I think it was fifty-four thousand dollars. So um, those two campaigns really made it possible for us to complete shooting and to finish paying the crew. And then the the, the trick became that we needed to raise money to pay for the archival film footage, the you know to license that footage, to license all the music in the film, um, and that budget was almost the same amount as what it took to actually complete production for the film. So that was not surprising to me, but it was still daunting to have to to have a completed film and still be needing to raise almost an equivalent amount of money. Um, and in that case, we did a lot of um, small fundraisers where we were able to get money to start to pay for things, but we were also able to call attention to the film to donors who... Uh, might be interested in giving it a higher level. So we we did do a a um, 
cocktail party that was a Kickstarter reward, and Roseanne Cash was in town here in Portland. She had played a concert um, in Portland the night before, so she attended this party for us. And I have to say, made an impassioned plea for the film. Um, she knew my work from uh, the from Welcome to the Club, and she was pleased with what I had been able to pull off so far, so she wanted to support it. And as you know, journalistically, ethically, I couldn't take money from my subjects. So she basically said that to the crowd. She said, look, Beth is an ethical journalist. She can't take money from my family, but she can accept money from you. And at the end of that cocktail party, a couple came forward, and they became the angel donors that kind of closed the gap for us on the on the funding and really made it possible for us to complete the film. Oh, what a blessing. How yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. You never know. You never know. Uh, and I love it because, you know, when you're talking to a crowd of people, you, you, you wish you knew how much money they had and who could do the most, but it's always people that you would least suspect is what I exactly exactly and in this case it was very interesting to me because these folks were uh very philanthropic turned out but their background had been in teaching uh high school and grammar school so uh they had been successful in a software business and had done very well with that um but their hearts were really they were folks who were from uh the midwest and grew up with appalachian music and really loved the topic. They were very committed to helping women filmmakers, and they happened to be in the room when Roseanne made her plea. And I I think the, you know, luck was with us and the forces were with us at that moment because uh, I can't, I couldn't think of better people. They're the executive producers of our film, and they're just incredibly generous, kind, um, spectacular individuals who have really made this possible at a time when I was starting to worry. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. How fabulous. Couldn't happen to a better filmmaker, I'll tell well, you. Well, thank you. <laughs> so now I understand that you're working with Argot Pictures doing a 50-plus theatrical run. So tell us more about this process. Yeah, so Ar- Argo <laughs> is a, a company out of New York. Um, they work with independent filmmakers. You know, as you uh, both, both. I'm sure you know the the landscape for distribution has changed radically too. You know, there was a day back in the day there was a point where someone would come to a film festival and buy your film outright and make it happen and end of discussion. Well, that's not the way it works anymore. And really, um, these these arrangements are partnerships more than anything. And the the company. Um, Jim Brown at Argo Films is very committed to independent filmmakers and has done been very successful with a couple of other music documentaries that I admire a great deal. So when uh, it, it was recommended to me that I speak to them, um, I was I was really favorably impressed with Jim and what he was able to accomplish with these other films. And basically, they take it very slowly and 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 methodically. Um, and we're not claiming that this is, you know, this is not a blockbuster film that's in multiplexes. It's a film that plays to art house audiences. But at this point, we have 50 bookings um, into ne- well into next year, and we just started in September. So um, it's it's been pretty great. And largely we're playing at beautiful old theaters that um, are, many of them are part of this uh, art house convergence that 
that Robert Redford is uh, spearheading, which is trying to you know bring life back to these beautiful old theaters that you know are competing with the multiplexes and frankly with cable television and what's on on your your box on Friday nights, you know. So um, we've been very, very lucky, and um, we've gotten great reviews for the film, and Jim has been able to take that and make it work for us. We're also working in conjunction with musicians at a lot of the places that I appear at with the film. So we'll either... uh, We've we've had some very high-profile musicians, uh, people who are in the film, like Dom Flemons of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and Murray Hammond of the old 97s, but also real up-and-coming um, roots music musicians, uh, a man named Petunia from uh, British Columbia who's got a huge following, and it, he appeared at our Seattle and Tacoma shows just recently. And uh, it brings this extra layer of life to the, the proceedings. You know, we have these musicians come, they play Carter Family songs, or in some cases Johnny Cash songs, prior to the screening. It creates this excitement for the subject matter. It draws people in, and and then um, hopefully once they get settled in and see the film, then it's, that, that's just another layer of, of fun for them. So um, that's been working well. It, it really helps draw people in because people want to feel like they're getting extra value, I think, for their film experience these days. So the pairing of live music with what we're doing has been really important, and we're continuing to do that um, as we go along. And um, we've got some some bookings up ahead that we'll be doing that too. So you're paying uh, musicians to come in as well as booking local. Yes, musicians. yes. We're we're in some cases the musicians have been great, and they've been they've because they're associated with the film, they've volunteered their time, but. You know, frankly, at this stage of the game for this film, as much as I'm still, you know, raising money to make sure I can travel to some of these places and doing, you know, it's still, at the moment, the jury's still out on what kinds of proceeds we'll see from the film because we haven't gone through our first quarter yet. Um, But it seems good. Um, But in the meantime, I feel like as a a musician myself and as an independent filmmaker who just made a film about music documentaries, I think that I would feel rather hypocritical if musicians came to my screening and I didn't give them something for their time. (laughs) So I've been trying very hard to make sure that people feel well compensated for what they're doing. And, And it's worked out great. People are terrific with me and have been generous with their time. And, um, but every, I, I do feel strongly that all artists need to get compensated. And I've made a point in making this film to make sure everybody got something, even if, it wasn't top dollar. Um, that's kind of my M.O. with uh, independent filmmaking in general. That's brilliant. Well, let me ask you then, do you sell DVDs or, uh, or anything? Do you sell yes. any other? Um, right now we're, we're, um, we're only selling DVDs at the events, but that's working out great because that's helping us fund the travel and, and, you know, the distribution costs that we have, you know, things like, posters and you know ads and things like that need to come out of a budget so that's being fueled at this point by the dvd sales but we also um (laughs) the film took me so long to make that i was i had enough time so that i could write a book to go with it (laughs) so there's a companion book and that's being sold off our website um and the dvds will soon be sold off the website um but not just at this moment 
And uh, we also have a wonderful relationship with a company called Omnivore Recordings in Los Angeles. And Omnivore does historical reissues, and they won the Grammy Award last year for um, a historical reissue about uh, Hank Williams. And I have partnered with them, and they have made a soundtrack for the film. So that just was released two weeks ago. And um, the interesting thing about that is not just that it's a, a, a nice extra financial stream, revenue stream for all concerned, but their publicists, their, you know, their people are able to help promote the film uh, when they promote the album. So it's like having a whole extra publicity team um, that I kind of didn't fully appreciate until we started working. And so we have um, an in-house publicist for that company and an outside publicist for that company, and they're getting out the word on social media and with bloggers and with critics. It's been listed in Rolling Stone. And so it, we're really pleased that it's um, – because every time you write about the soundtrack, of course, you have to mention that there's a film. <laughs> so, of course. Um, and so that's been working out great. We're very, very pleased with that relationship. They're great people, and we really feel that this raises the profile of the film even further. Oh, I'm sure it does. And um – that will drive even more people to your website for right. uh, other products and other sales. And all of this marketing will pay off when you go to your uh, VOD. That's right? right. That's right. And honestly, that's the, um, you know, as it was presented to me by advisors I spoke with prior to signing the arrangement with uh, Argo, is that, you know, with theatrical releases, you know, by the time you do the math and you pay for your travel and you pay for the posters and you pay for the ads and you pay for the musicians, you might not make all that much money. Um, but the point is that it raises a profile and gets the word out in a number of markets. So right now we've been all over the country with this film and we will continue to be all over the country with this film. And that um, that awareness will fuel the Friday night you're at home watching cable and you want to do a video on demand movie and you scroll down the list. Oh, and there's the winding stream. I've heard about that. I wasn't able to get to that when it played in my local theater. So um, I I really feel like this is you know the paving the way for our video on demand and digital streaming release, which will be probably next spring, late spring. Next spring, great. Yeah, and so. Yeah. Um, in closing, tell us what did you learn from this film that you could share with other filmmakers, the do's and don'ts and anything uh, well, you can give us. I think the big thing is um, uh, it's, it, the landscape has changed, and, and it continues to change rapidly. And even things that were true like six months ago aren't necessarily true now. You know, for example, I, I was told that don't get your hopes up about theatrical you might only get six cities. Well, we've had 50 cities, and that was a shock to me, but that, but that is partly, you know, I'd like to think part of it's the merits of the film, but part of it is just that things have changed so much, and, and they keep changing. So now there's, more, there's a return to the art house that wasn't there last year. Um, so I think, you know, being agile and being able to move with trends and, frankly, keeping up on trends, reading things, paying attention to, you know, programs like yours and paying attention to bloggers who are writing about documentary film and distribution. I think that's really, really important um, because it's not 
it's not like this year this is how it goes and it's going to be this way for the next 10 years. It's changing every four or five months, you know. So, um, you know, what was true about Netflix last year isn't necessarily true about Netflix this year. Um, what's true about iTunes isn't necessarily true anymore. So, you know, you have to really stay on top of it. And I think that's the major thing for me was getting out of my own way and getting unstuck when I saw that things Things were different, but I couldn't figure it out. And then once I started figuring it out, I realized I had to be agile and stay on top of all that stuff. Flexibility is the key word for the filmmaker. Right? Yes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Don, did you have any questions you wanted to ask? Well, so you, what you may mention of something you're working on now. Um, well, I'm I'm kind of playing with some things. You know, to be honest, this is going to take me well, you know, well into 2016. So I haven't gotten too far ahead of myself because it's just taking everything I've got right now. I'm on the road constantly, but I have mm-hmm. a couple of projects in mind. One would be sort of a a short narrative film. I realize that part of uh, where I'm at as a filmmaker is I need to sort of do a mental palate cleanser <laughs> and you know, documentary filmmaking is hard because you want to be accurate and you want to be true and you want to to maintain the highest sense of ethics that you can. And uh, I was thinking how much nicer it is sometimes just to make something up and shoot it. <laughs> so I'm working with uh, the musician I mentioned, Petunia, on a short film that we're hoping might turn into a, a series. Um, so that's one one thing I'm working on. Another thing I'm working on is, uh, and that would spin off of this content, by the way. It would spin off of the uh, 1920s time period and and the and roots music musicians. Um, the other thing I'm thinking of doing is um, I would like to do another music documentary. And there's a a little known but very important rock and roll band called Fanny which was the first all-female band to get signed to a major label. And most people don't know who they are, but the founder of that band is still working today, and she's incredible, and she runs this incredible music program for young girls so they can learn how to play rock and roll. And I thought that that might be a, a cool next project. So I'm, I'm hoping to be doing things like that in the future. Um, but I thought first I'd give myself a little breather and do something that was just something I could shoot in two days and edit and declare victory. <laughs> that sounds marvelous. I love this idea of these shorts and doing a series of them. I think that'd be fabulous. Well, it was one of the things I really noted that um, even though there is still an appetite for documentary films as far as audiences go, there's less will to fund these things up front. Um, most distributors and, and decision makers will say, oh, yeah, come back when it's done and we'll we'll take a look at it. And it's like, well, how did you expect me to get it done exactly? You know, uh, th- those folks used to give advance money, but they don't now. So um, it, it's made it a lot more challenging. So I thought that it would be nice to approach something in a totally different way and just give my, my mind a break and, and give myself some new stimulation, too. I've been making documentaries for over 35 years, and um, it, I thought it would be nice to do something that was in a completely different realm but was still film-related. Great idea. You've got to come back to our film grant next year. Oh, thank you. I would love to, I would love to apply again. The, your film grant was so instrumental in so many ways, and it was 
Um, and mostly, in, in the largest way, it was um, the shot in the arm I needed at a certain point. Your energy, Carol, is so great. And uh, getting to meet you um, was, was so great that you're, you've just got a positive attitude about things. And frankly, when you're making independent films, you can kind of get into your own little negative space and stay put there for a long time. And it was really nice to meet you and have your support and like that and the support of oh. all the people you engage in the in the grant too oh thank you so much yes i do remember that day at joffrey's and it's always a delight <laughs> uh, you're such a nice. star in our uh in our documentary heaven and so oh thank forward. you yes you're very thank welcome you. okay well i sincerely thank you beth for sharing all this information we we wish you the very best of luck we know you've got an angel on your shoulder so things are going to work out for you and thanks, Don, for your reviews, and thank you, Claire, for hosting our show. Oh, yeah. Thank it. Thanks, everybody. This is fun. Okay, <laughs> that's what it's for. So have fun. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye. 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 Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.